0: Please turn with me in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As a reminder, we have been doing a brief series in 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5. That series is concluding today, and Lord willing, we will go back to where we've been, which is in the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew next Sunday. So we will actually be at the end of the Lord's Prayer talking about not leading us into temptation, and that will be the plan for next week. Let me pray for us again. Heavenly Father, I do ask that through your Spirit, you would grant divine illumination to your Word even now, that we would understand it truly. As the psalmist prayed, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things in your law, in your Word. God, I pray that right now you would do what only you can do which is to take the eyes of all of our hearts that can grow dull and numb and calloused and distracted and bored and to tear away the scales from the eyes of our hearts so that we can see the glory of Jesus, the glory of the triune God of Scripture, the glory of the cross, all by Your grace and ultimately for Your glory, and God, I pray that you would do a work now that only you can accomplish, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we come to the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I just wanted to say a couple brief words This may, you know, if you can't, if this doesn't follow, if you can't follow all this or pin all this down in your mind, that's okay. I just wanted to say an introductory comment here, kind of an overview comment about the book of 2 Corinthians. I haven't really done this at this point. I thought before we leave the book for right now, I want to just say something about the book in general. If you're sitting down to read through 2 Corinthians, it can be one of the harder books of Paul to follow the train of thought. If you're used to reading Paul, like you say, Romans is very orderly. It's logical progression. You know, you can see what Paul's doing. Uh, Some of his books are like that. Ephesians is more orderly. Uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul jumps around. He leaves the subject off in chapter 2. He comes back to the subject in chapter 7. You're like, why did that just happen? What's going on? And so just to give a very, very uh, uh, simple approach to the book for those who read more on it, and it may help us a little bit with our text today, you can split the book, and numerous different people do the same thing here. You can split the book into three parts, chapters 1 through 7, which is Paul really Rejoicing over the repentance of the Corinthian church, chapters 1 through 7. Chapters 8 and 9 has to do with their generosity. He's he's seeking their generosity to help poor Christians living in Jerusalem, chapters 8 and 9. And then the last chapters, chapters 10 through 13, Paul is really driving down on this point that he is a true apostle of Christ and that false apostles what he calls the super apostles. These are what these, these people were. They are not to be followed. They're actually messengers of Satan, he says, in chapter 11. So the flow of thought is basically this. The false teachers have infiltrated the church to some degree, the super apostles. You should already be sus- suspicious when the person shows up and they're the super apostles. You go, I, I don't know about this. So the super apostles show up. I don't know if they're wearing a cape. I don't know what they look like. And they have the big S on their chest. And the super apostles show up, and they're saying, listen, The gospel is about glory and triumph. It's about ruling and reigning. It's about prosperity. It's about health and greatness and ruling. It's kind of the modern-day prosperity gospel. Look at us. We're well-to-do. We're doing doing great. We've got the better way. Look at Paul. Are you kidding me? The apostle Paul is weak. He's always suffering. He can never seem to stay out of prison for more than a short time. He's been beat up shipwrecked, that does not look like the way of God. If we're the king's children, look at how we're going to live. We're going to live above and beyond all the sufferings and struggles of this world. And so Paul sends Titus to the Corinthians because he wants to know how they're doing. He's worried that they've left Paul and moved to these false apostles. Titus meets with them, the younger guy. He comes back and Paul runs into, he tracks him down and he meets with Paul. Uh, Paul meets with Titus in the Macedonia area, you know, Philippi and Thessalonica. He finds Titus. He says, Titus, I've got to know how the Corinthians are doing. And Titus says, you're not going to believe this, Paul. I've got great news. They have renounced the false apostles. The vast majority of the church, if not all, have turned back to you as being God's true apostle. They're truly seeking to follow the God that you're teaching, the true God. And Paul says he's overwhelmed by joy. And that's what chapters 1 through 7 are tracing. Paul's delighting in their repentance. He's overwhelmed by it. He says, you've had godly sorrow that produces real repentance, and you've you've understood that God has purposes, good purposes for suffering, and one day he'll resurrect us never to suffer again. This is wonderful news. And in the second half of the book, chapters 8 and 9, he says, I want to test your repentance a little bit here. One way I will see that your repentance is real is that you will trust me and that you'll be generous in." completing this donation to give to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And if you give generously, it will show that you truly are repentant. And along with that, chapters 10 through 13, Paul says, but if there's anyone left in the church who is still seeking to follow those false apostles, I want to give one final argument for why I am genuine and they are not genuine. And that's what, if you read 10, 11, 12, 13, that's all Paul is talking about. He's contrasting his ministry with theirs. So I hope that orients you to just a big picture, and now I want to zoom in here on the last half of chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 10, where we we preached last week, and then we'll go to verse 21, and I might mention a few verses in chapter 6. So again, this is God's Word, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God... and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God." I've got three points for the message. Number one, we see our need. Number two, we become new. And number three, we seek to persuade. Number one, we see our need. Number two, we become new. And number three, we seek to persuade. I plan to spend the most time on the second point, well, let me start with this. So Paul in this passage is presenting what it is like to become a Christian. And so let me start where we've always got to start, which is why should I care about what Paul has to say about becoming a Christian? What does that have to do with me? And maybe that is you today. Maybe you're, maybe you're here and you're, you're thinking, I was brought here by a friend or family member, and I'm glad to be here, but I don't really feel some deep need for the Jesus of the Bible. I'm doing quite well, thank you. I've got a great job, I've got a great family, everything's going my way. I I don't feel some overwhelming need for religion or Jesus or gospel or the Bible. Uh, So number one, this is an important point, we must see our need. What is our need? Well, let me remind you from last week of our text. Look at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So last Sunday's sermon, the whole sermon was about the judgment. And I talked about judgment is always according to works in the Bible. And in case you missed that sermon, I need to very quickly clarify what Paul is saying here. Number one, he is not saying our good works save us. He's not saying that you are saved if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. I ended with the thief on the cross last week. You may remember that. And the thief on the cross, I think, had maximally seven hours of being a Christian before he died on that Friday, a little bit after Jesus died. Remember? He had seven hours of so-called good works, and they were good works. He confessed his sin. He rebuked the other thief. He called on Jesus as the Messiah going into a kingdom, and he asked Jesus to remember him. Those were legitimate good works. But did his good works outweigh his bad works? He had a full life of at least decades of sin, and he had seven hours of righteous conduct. Are we really thinking that he was saved because those seven hours of righteous deeds on a cross outweigh his 30 or 40 years of sin? No, people are not saved because their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. The judgment according to works is this. Is there evidence that the Holy Spirit has made me new in Christ? Is there evidence of a new heart? of new affections and loves for Jesus and His Word? Not just religion, not just church, not just theological conversation. Is there actual love for Christ that is evident in my words and deeds, and is that a persistent and continual thing that runs through the course of my Christian life? Whether your Christian life is seven hours long, like the thief on the cross, or more likely if your Christian life is years or decades long, is there a persistent evidence Of a transformation of heart and affection that shows itself continually in a change of life. Not perfection, not sinlessness, but a real and permanent transformation of nature. And those evidences of change will show that our faith in Christ was genuine at the last judgment. But that's not my main point here. My point is what about showing our need? Let me give the negative side of final judgment. I mean, you ever been in a courtroom? Have you ever seen someone getting tried for a semi-serious offense, or at least watched one online or something like that? You, you see someone standing there at the mercy of the jury? Have you seen this? I remember one particular story of a man who uh, I, I truly believe was innocent, and he was declared innocent, but he was, he was on trial for a very serious crime. Uh, I think at this point everyone agrees that he was innocent, but it, was, it, it looked like he could still face life in prison for what he had done, and he had a wife and he had children, and the video makes you weep because this man, who I believe truly seems to have been innocent, was sitting there, and he was supposed to stand as the jury read his sentence. So they, they, they have, his attorneys are on both sides. They're all in their suits. And he stands up. He's a, he's a larger man. And the two attorneys are there next to him. And he's feeling, you can tell, weak at the knees because he's either going to spend the rest of his life in prison and barely see his family, or he's going to be released that day to be home with his kids. That's what he's facing. He's facing. And he doesn't know for sure what the verdict, he, he thinks one way, but he's not sure. And he's standing there. Now, I mean, watched this thing over and over. I saw it, I watched it multiple times when I first discovered this. They said that the the, the, the evidence of the jury is in, I don't remember the wording, that the person pulls up the official reading from the jury, the jury has said that you are, and he, he's sitting there like this, not guilty of the crime. And he immediately uh, collapses. The two lawyers have to reach down and grab him. He collapses onto the ground. He's sobbing uncontrollably, and they pick him up, and he hugs the two, the two, uh, the two attorneys, and then his family is behind him, and they're, they're rejoicing and celebrating. Okay, do you understand that there is coming a day where we stand before the true judge of all the world, and an eternal destiny for every person is going to be declared publicly? Do you understand that there's a moment coming where that's going to happen for you personally, all the sins that you have ever committed will be on full display. If you don't know the Lord, all your sin will be just right there. All the secret sin, all the hidden things, sins you forgot you did 30 to 50 years ago, if, 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 you, if, if, if that is the case for you, those sins will be brought before you. Things that you did not have any cognizance of or memory of, and they will be there in vivid detail, and the Lord God of the universe will say, I am going to judge you in accordance with what you've done. There is no evidence of trust in Christ. Instead, there is a mountain of sin, and the Lord will bang the gavel, the Lord Jesus, and say, you will now receive the due reward for your deeds. And because our sins are not mainly offending people, but offenses against God's infinite glory, the unbelievable consequences will be everlasting destruction in the lake of fire. Now, that's why... Behind this text and in this text is our great need. If you see it, look at verse 20. 520, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, the NASB, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So so here's what we're saying. Do you know that you need reconciliation with a holy God? Because Hebrews said, "Is that it is appointed unto man to die once, and then comes the judgment. And there is no second chance after death. I don't care what weird theologies you may run into. That is not taught in Scripture. Once death occurs, there is no looking back. That, that is the final state. So the time to deal with God in eternity is right now. Running throughout the Bible, the phrase is this. Hebrews says it over and over. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the days of rebellion." There are different pastors who speak Spurgeon and others. Lloyd-Jones, I believe, has a similar story. I'm, I'm confusing who is who, but I think it was Spurgeon. I could be wrong, who has a story where he was mocked and insulted by another man who lived in London where he was. A man insulted Spurgeon as this you know, young pastor, and he just made fun of him, apparently with his friends. He had mocked Spurgeon. But when it came time, he became prematurely ill and was dying. Guess who he wanted to talk to? He wanted to talk to that man. He wanted to talk to Spurgeon, and, and Spurgeon was called to his bedside. But the point is this, so often we can think, oh man, hearing this gospel message, this, I got things to do, I've got a busy week, what are we doing wasting our time here? A part of your brain could say that. And I'm telling you, there is coming a day where having heard a gospel sermon will mean more to you than you can possibly imagine. You understand that? There's a lifeline just being laid out there for those who are drowning and ultimately dead in sin, that there's a way to be right with that holy God. There is a way to be accepted by that holy God. There's a way to be absolutely adopted into that family. It's astonishing news that that is here. So we must see in the gospel our need of salvation. I really do think the number one false belief in the world is that I don't need a savior. I guess the number one false belief across the globe, no matter what your background or what your belief system, the feeling that I am essentially good with some minor flaws is one of the most damning and false beliefs that there is in this world. Do you know that you need a Savior? Unless you know you're sick, you're not calling the doctor. And unless you know you are a sinner through and through, you're not calling for a Savior in Jesus. Until that happens, you just think you can pull it off by yourself and you don't truly need the rescue. So, point number one, we must see our need. Point number two, we become new in Christ. Let's look at this. Verse 11. Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that we may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised, Therefore, from now on, therefore, We regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Statistically speaking, the person, the age, most likely to become a Christian is younger. So if you mark it kind of mid-twenties, If you look down from there, it is statistically more likely, just giving statistics, that someone converts earlier in life. But let's be very careful here. God can convert anyone at any age. But there are different temptations to avoid conversion at different times of life. Just being honest here, the longer you have lived, the more used to living the way you live, you are. And the more set in your patterns you become, the older you get. That's just the way we are as human beings. And I do think that there is a tendency, the, the longer we have lived, to think, I'm just the way I am. There's no changing me fundamentally. I mean, I can adopt a New Year's resolution. I can figure out some new little, I can read a little self-help book and try to change some habits. But if you're talking about fundamentally changing me from the core It's too late for me. That ship has sailed. There's no hope for me changing fundamentally at the core. And I'm telling you, that is untrue. God can actually change and transform you from the center of your being out. And he can do it today to anyone, no matter their age. When I think of Miss Dorothy, who's a member of our church, some of you may not know her story. Let me just mention this briefly. Miss Dorothy was invited to our church She was in her late 80s when she first attended our church. I think she was about 88, I think, when she first attended our church. If you don't know this story, you you should hear this. This is very encouraging. And she would sit here right around this section of the sanctuary every Sunday. And from the get-go, she seemed to be unusually... Well, at, at first, she seemed maybe not as interested. But after a few weeks, she seemed to be more interested in what was happening in the service. And I'm telling you, not that many weeks in, I will never forget... She was deeply bothered at the end of a service. We're sitting right over in this section of the, of the sanctuary. And so I was called over to talk to her. I sat down right next to her on one of these pews, and she's sitting right here, and she said, you know, I grew up Catholic. I haven't, I haven't really walked in any kind of faith most of my adult life. I'm 88 years old. She's talking about... And suddenly, she freezes up. She just goes silent. And I look over at her, and she says, I think I know what's holding me back from the Lord. And I'm sitting there. And it's completely silent, and she says... I think it's pride, and when she said the word pride, she turned her head down, and she started crying, and she would not stop crying, I didn't even know what to do, I just sat there for a moment, she started to cry and cry, and she covered her eyes, and she cried for a while, and then she started speaking about Christ in a slightly different way, and other people were talking to her, we brought people over to speak with her, the next week she comes back to church, the next week, and she says, this has been an amazing week, so I was baking cookies, I don't normally do anything, I was baking cookies, I was playing all this stuff, I was listening to, all the, I think she started listening to sermons, she started loving Alistair Begg's preaching, I was like, something has happened here, and she said, something is different, so that she had this joy beaming on her face, I I, took, I I introduced her to several people who hadn't met her that next Sunday, a few months later, she was baptized, Josh Chronic helped me baptize her up in the baptistry, uh, a few months later, and she joined our church, and she is walking with the Lord. She was converted in her late 80s and now she has a love for sermons from Alistair Begg that she listens to in her living room. Now she wants to read her Bible. She asked for a larger print Bible because she couldn't read as well. All these different things were happening. What happened? Because in her late 80s, her life was transformed. She was made a new creation in Christ. It does not matter how young you are or how old you are. If we will simply turn from how we are living and we will trust in Jesus by God's grace, He will make us completely new. New loves, new longings will grow in our heart because God alone can do that. Some of the evidences of this that Paul mentions we stop caring so much about outward appearance, we stop regarding people according to the flesh. You know what that's like? We've all done it. How does the world evaluate people? How attractive is someone? How rich is someone? How famous is someone? How much business savvy does this person have? What Fortune 500 company does this person own or work for? How much power and influence do they have in the culture? Well, now you, you matter to me. Because if I get near you, you can help me out. and I'm going to selfishly manipulate my way towards you because you can help me. Uh, you know, th- th- that kind of thing. Regarding people according to the flesh. And Paul says, we used to even regard Christ Jesus according to the flesh. I thought he was a false prophet, full of himself, who got what he deserved on a Roman cross, and he died under God's judgment. I thought that's exactly right. But then he said, the Holy Spirit opened my eyes, and suddenly I saw that Jesus was actually the God-man, and that yes, he did die on a cross under God's curse, but not for his sin, but for our sin, if we will trust in him. And he says, now I regard Christ in a completely different way. I was converted right around my 16th birthday. I still would love to know the moment or even the day. I don't know. I'll I'll sometimes look back at things I wrote at the time and I'm trying to trace it, like where exactly did it happen? It was the summer of 2003. I know going into that summer, I was most definitely not a Christian. I thought I was, but I was not. I can guarantee you I was not a Christian in early June of 2003. Coming out of that summer, into July, I believe I was converted. I was a Christian. I don't know precisely when it happened, but... To this day, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe there's another moment, but the, the earliest single moment I remember of a transformation having happened is a weird one, and I've shared it before, I'm sure. I was right up the road here at everyone's favorite place, the DMV, and I will say, if you're at the DMV, you're either going to become a Christian or, or just lose your soul. One of those two things is likely to happen, and I think I must have found my soul there. I don't know what happened, so... I, I'm not kidding you. It was my 16th birthday. I could not wait to get my driver's license. I mean, this was like the biggest deal imaginable. And this is back when you had to schedule an appointment months ahead. So if you fail, you had to wait several months to get another appointment. So I was going to wait three. I think I had to wait three months. So I am taking the test, and I was parallel parking. To this day, I can't parallel park with a flip. And I hit a cone. I knocked a cone over. And I'm sure I did something else wrong. That was the big bad thing. And the lady in the passenger seat said, "You can go ahead and park. We're done." I was like, is that a good thing? So I, uh, I went ahead and parked, and she said, yep, you, you failed. You hit the cone and whatever else, and, and uh, yeah, we'll have to schedule something else or whatever she said. Now, I was a 16-year-old boy, and I had a mouth on me that I could I, could, I could, I said things to authority figures that were truly evil at times, just like argumentative, smart aleck, jabbing at authorities and getting myself in trouble. That's what I was great at. That's what, that's what I was known for. I was, it was great. So my flesh was about to do what I always did which was smart off and say some cutting comment to this lady because I was ticked at her for failing me, as if it was her fault that I hit the cone, right? This is clearly not her fault that I hit the cone. So then in that moment, I'm not kidding you, it was like a conscious moment. I don't remember this happening before this. Consciously, in my heart, I remember having the conscious thought, no, you need to show her the love of Christ. This was not a normal thought in my mind. And truly, truly, this is the first moment where I remember fruit in my life. I was gracious toward her by God's grace. I did not respond with a smart aleck comment. I was, I was, you know, I think I apologized or whatever for how I drove, and then I set up an appointment I got my license later in October, three months or so, you know, several months later. So that is one of the first moments where instead of treating her according to the flesh, for the first time I regarded her in accordance with the Spirit. I I wanted to love her. I wanted to be gracious to her. Those are the kinds of things that begin to change by God's power, and we begin to think of people in regards to spiritual and supernatural things. You remember when Samuel in the Old Testament is going to anoint the, the king after Saul? Remember, he's going to find the king, and he goes to Jesse's house out there in Bethlehem, and he shows up. You know the story. We're going to find the next king. I'm sure he's going to be a strong, good-looking, leader-looking type of man, tall, all the cliché characteristics of a leader. So he looks at the first, the brother Eliab, he's a strong guy. Samuel's like, this has got to be him. Remember the verse? Let me read the verse. First Samuel 16, 6. When they came, Samuel looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This has got to be the next king. Look at this guy. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. When we become new in Christ, we stop treating people in terms of how much money they make or what they can do for us. And we start thinking of people in relationship to their connection to Christ or lack of connection to Christ. You start thinking of a rich person who's lost as a lost person who needs Jesus. And you think of a poor person who knows Jesus as a person who's rich in Christ and knows the Lord. You you start reevaluating people. Not that you ignore physical needs. That's not what I'm saying. Of course not. We, we care about physical needs. But you remember James chapter 2, you who show favoritism in the church. A rich guy comes in to visit church. You give him a nice prominent seat. A poor person comes in. You ask him to sit on the floor. He says, what are you doing? You're becoming judges with evil thoughts. Has not God chosen the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? But as it is now, you are sinning against these poor people. So, James is saying, you're regarding people according to the flesh, but now in Christ we can regard people according to God's Word and according to spiritual realities. Has that change happened in your heart? Do you fundamentally begin to think of people around you in terms of their relationship with Jesus and how you can help them grow towards Christ or in Christ, or are you fundamentally thinking people in terms of their, whatever, money, power, athletic achievement, attractiveness? How are we evaluating people In this world, those are the things that begin to change in our lives when we come to know the Lord. Point number three. So, point number one was we see our need. Number two, we become new. Point number three, we seek to persuade. We seek to persuade. Let's go back to verses 10 and 11 again. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, now let me just stop here. I think you guys are, are great at this, but I just want to wave a little flag here on how to interpret our Bibles. First of all, you want a translation that has the connecting words included. These are the words like, therefore, so, but, for, because. Because these connecting words tell you about the logical flow of thought. If you lose the connecting word, you'll lose the argument. Does that make sense? So, here, Paul says, everyone is going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore. You hear the connection? Therefore, because everyone you ever meet is going to appear before Christ. Verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade others that's just running from God, a fleeing from God. But this is a reverential but genuine awe and fear of the Lord. In other words, this, if all your family members that you saw over over the last few months and all your friends and neighbors and students and fellow students at school or whatever it may be, people you work with or see around, if all of them Are going to one day have an appointment with King Jesus before his judgment seat. If that is true, which it is, then there should be a holy fear and care for those people because that's what's coming. Therefore, we should fear and we should seek to persuade others. This should be a regular part of our lives. We should be influencing those who do not know Christ to become believers in Christ. Some of these, these uh, times of persuasion can take months, years, decades. Some people have these agonizing stories, whether it's for a child who's lost or wanders away like a prodigal or whatever it is, praying and weeping over a lost person for literally years and decades sometimes. Sometimes. But our desire is to persuade them of the truth and to be used by God that they might be one to Christ. Let me just say, if you are getting weary in praying for some lost person that you love or sharing with them, if you're weary, you're saying, I've done zero for this person. They have changed not at all. I have wept over them. I have prayed over them many times. I have shared with them, and years have gone by, and there appears to be absolutely no change. In fact, this person seems to be hardening to the gospel. They're more bothered by the Jesus talk than they were five years ago. They're more offended by even the gospel message than they were months ago. If that's where you are, I want to encourage you. Jesus told a parable that we might always pray and not lose heart, and he says in that parable that we should be persistent because those who keep on asking receive, those who keep on seeking find, and on it goes. We should not lose heart because we have been rescued. We seek to rescue others from the judgment that we ourselves have deserved. Let's go to the end of our passage here, chapter 5. Let's look at verse 18. So all this, the transformation Be reconciled to God. Reconciliation shows up in several parts of Paul's letters. This is the most it appears in any one section, I think, in the whole of Scripture. The word reconciliation appears all all over the place here. Let me just say a word about that concept. When when, when a relationship is not reconciled, you're at odds with someone. So we are born dead in sin. We are born naturally enemies of God and enmity with God. We don't want God to be controlling us or Lord over us. So we're a natural enemy or hostile to God. And reconciliation happens when this happens. We put down our weapons of the flesh. We put down our sins. We put them down. We stop fighting with God. We turn to God rather in delight and we run like the prodigal into the arms of our father and we are embraced by him because of Christ. And when that happens... We are now reconciled. We once were hostile, and now we are on wonderful terms. We went from enemies to friends. We went from actually alienation to adoption. We went from being not part of God's family in that sense to being adopted as sons and daughters of God. Now, how can all this be true? We're moving towards a time of communion, and there is hard to find a better passage to set us up for communion today. Look at 521, the great exchange. We, we talked about it in recent months a few times. One of the most important summaries of the gospel in all the Bible. For our sake, He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus, God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now in case you've grown accustomed to this verse, you've heard it recently, maybe you've thought about it a lot in your life, you're like, I know this verse. I want you to be amazed by it even now. Are you ready? Think about this. All the filth of your sin, all the absolute filth of your sin has been part of you for your whole life. When we trust Christ, all of the filth, all of the debris of our life is taken off of us and it's placed on the, spotless, on the spotless Son of God, on Jesus. And all of Jesus' perfect righteousness is covering us. Which means when we pray and we say in Jesus' name, and when we come before God, we are not coming based on our actions. We're coming based on the righteousness of Jesus. And it gives us full and free confidence to come before the Lord. Spurgeon said this. Spurgeon said, We are born without Christ. Remember Ephesians 2, you were um, without God and without hope and without Christ when you were born. We were born without Christ. When we are Christians, we are born again in Christ. We are now in Christ. And one day, we will be with Christ. We're born without Christ. Now, if we know Him, we are in Christ. And one day, when we meet Him, we will be with Christ for all of eternity. And that's all because of His finished work on the cross. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As you're turning there, I'm going to read a quote from Spurgeon. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to make one more exhortation to anyone listening who is not yet a believer. Listen to these words from Charles Spurgeon. A man may stand at the banqueting table, and he may yet be without food standing at the banquet table without food. Unless he puts out his hand to grasp that which is provided, he will go hungry. And a man may have uh, heard Christ preached every Sunday and yet be without Christ. Unless Unless he puts forth his hand of faith to lay hold of Jesus, he will remain without him. It is a most unhappy condition to be without Christ. It is inconvenient to be without money. It is miserable to be without health. It is deplorable to be without a friend. It is wretched to be without reputation. But to be without Christ is the worst lack in all the world. Oh, that God would make all of us sensible to it, who are now the subjects of it. And may we no longer wait or tarry in the position of being without Christ. Listen, unbelieving friend listening now. Jesus is available to you for free because of the great cost he paid on the cross. If you will simply turn, even now, and trust in Jesus, he will make you new. He will forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future. They'll be gone, cast as far as the east is from the west, and you will have the righteousness of Jesus counted to you. That can happen right now. Whether you are 8 years old or 88 years old, the Lord can make you new even now. 1 Corinthians 11, look with me at verse 23. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. If you are not a believer yet, we are offering you right now Jesus but we are not offering these elements yet. These elements are for those who have already turned from sin and trusted in Christ. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are not walking in unrepentant sin at this time, then you may come forward after I say amen and take of the elements and return to your seat and we will celebrate together what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we not grow bored with the gospel. Imagine the amount of sin we produce over our lives. Imagine just one week's sin contained in one place. Imagine a month of sin all gathered together. Imagine a year of sin in our life all in one place. It would make us ashamed for others to even know Imagine a decade of sin that any of us has committed gathered together in one place. Imagine a lifetime of sin gathered together in one place. What shame. What embarrassing shame for any of us, for all of us, if we were being honest. And the thought that all of that would be placed on the sinless one and that he would bleed and die abandoned by the Father in our place For our sins, although he himself had never sinned, is astonishing. And yet it does not stop there. We are not made innocent, merely. We are made righteous in Christ, with a righteousness not our own. The full obedience of Jesus, most clearly demonstrated by his obedience on the cross. As Paul said, he was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. That full obedience of Jesus is now ours in Christ. What an amazing thought. That we have the righteousness of Jesus covering us because our sins have been atoned for. Lord, I pray even now as we come forward that we would rejoice, even if there are tears, that we would rejoice and celebrate what your Son has done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please bow your head with me. Reading from Titus chapter 3. For we ourselves were once foolish. to good works. Lord, when we think about our pre-converted life, we are ashamed and we are amazed that you would reach down into history and choose to save us. When I think personally about where I was when I was 16, it is a wonder that you would reach down and save me. Lord, we are thankful are thankful. That's not even a word that adequately describes what is true. We are amazed by the fact that you would do what you did for sinners like us. That you would rescue us from a life of sin. That you would give us new desires, new heart, new affections, new longings, new loves. Surround us by other believers who love you, love your word, Inform our minds with right teaching, correct our sinful patterns, put us on a whole new course, and change our future in ways that we have not yet begun to fathom when we think about eternity. Where we would have gone versus where we are now heading is so vastly, unimaginably different that it is hard for us to comprehend. But we are thankful. And God, I pray that our lives would correspond to the truths of the gospel, that we would be patient with the people that we love and the people around us, that we would be forgiving. That we would turn the other cheek, that we would not respond insult for insult or injury for injury, that we would respond as Christ has responded to us with grace, with truth, with forgiveness. And God, I pray our church would model that corporately when we're gathered and individually when we are scattered throughout the week. So be with us this week, Lord, and we pray all this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.